Hello, I'm Paco Alvarez, and this is The Backstory from Type Investigations, where we sit down with one of our reporters and ask them to take us behind the scenes of their work. Today, I'm speaking to Ida B. Wells fellow Irene Romulo. This past May, Romulo published her investigation, Gang Contracts in Cicero and Berwyn Schools Raise Concerns About Criminalization of Youth, produced in partnership with Injustice Watch and the publication she co-founded, Cicero Independiente. In the story, Romulo revealed that over the past seven years, over 100 students in the predominantly Latinx working-class suburbs of Cicero and Berwyn, Illinois, have signed gang behavior contracts, which prohibit them from engaging in what could be considered gang-related behavior and warn they could face escalating disciplinary measures for breaking the agreement. Throughout the article, Romulo links the current use of gang contracts to Cicero's long history of criminalizing youth. In this conversation, we discuss how she discovered the gang contracts, the challenges of reporting during a pandemic, and the impact her story has had on students in her community. My first question is, um, how did you first learn that schools in Sister and Berwyn were using gang contracts and what drew you to the story? I first learned about this issue through a community meeting that was hosted by members of the group that's profiled in the story called uh, Ichtel. Um, so they had a community meeting where they were discussing different issues in the schools, including the high expulsion and suspension rates. And it was there that somebody mentioned the gang contracts in, in, in passing. And it was something that immediately caught my attention. And I wasn't immediately able to look into the issue. But, um, you know, thanks to the Ida B. Wells Fellowship, I was able to actually commit time to file Freedom of Information Act request to get the actual copies of the gang contracts and just learn more about the issue. Um, it was unfortunate because, uh, you know, when I did start investigating this, I did reach out to the school district officials just to ask for background information, but, you know, didn't receive any responses. So had to rely on a lot of FOIA requests to learn more about how the gang contracts um, are used or were being implemented. Ultimately, like it was an issue that just felt very important to me because of how much youth are criminalized, um, you know, gang databases, uh, using gang affiliation as reasons to increase surveillance in communities of color or to increase patrolling in communities of color is something that has received a lot of attention in Chicago, uh, but not necessarily the suburbs. And, and I know that in Cicero and Berwyn, as somebody who grew up here, there's a long history of targeting young people who are uh, alleged to be gang affiliated. So. It, it was definitely something that I found very interesting as a personal matter, but, um, you know, as, as something that other people cared about in Cicero, too, I, I felt it was important to actually listen to people who, you know, do activism around this issue and spend time investigating this uh, a little bit more, given how important it already was to to the community here. Yeah, I think... Your article does like a really great job of connecting the extremes of this gang contracts to Cicero's history of criminalizing youth under like the auspices of fighting gangs. Um, and uh, how did you come to that connection over the course of your reporting? Was it just apparent to you when you first came to the story? 
So I I had known a little bit about some of the, like, for example, the gang crimes tactical unit that the different police departments had. Uh, so because like because of the investigation, you know, I did start researching a little bit more about the history of this uh, and, you know, researching even Delia Barajas, who is profiled in the story as one of the community members here in Cicero, who's actively doing something about these issues. You know, I, I learned so much about Cicero's history, uh, not just in terms of like the demographic changes that have occurred, but the different policies that the town has tried to implement in the 90s and early 2000s, despite the fact that gangs have been a documented issue in in Cicero since before that, right? Like Cicero is known as a mafia town as having organized crime, but the amount of resources that were spent uh, you know, wasn't the same until the demographics started changing. And um, if you're familiar with like what's happening in the city of Chicago now, the the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, is actually trying to advance an ordinance very similar to what Cicero passed in, in the early 2000s, which uh, is an ordinance that allows them to seize uh, the the assets of alleged gang members. So, you know, and, and again, it's kind of like this rhetoric that is used about gang membership and the increase in gangs and this fear around gangs that's used to pass these policies that ultimately, at least according to, you know, many of the advocates and people who I spoke to, don't necessarily address the underlying issues of why, like, youth uh, are involved in gangs, uh, automatically criminalize, like, involvement that's not necessarily criminal in itself, right? Like, being a part of a group um, isn't necessarily against any any laws uh, in that way. So, yeah, it's 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 definitely an issue that's gaining more attention and that locally is very important. Speaking on that like local angle, the story was published in the publication you co-founded, Cicero Independiente. How did coming from a community-based outlet help your reporting? For me, it's you know one of the reasons why I got into journalism in the first place is because I felt that often there's a big disconnect between investigations that, you know, look into systemic problems and the communities that they're actually about. I find that often those findings, those things that are written, don't make it back to the people that contributed or that were willing to share their story or to who are actively like doing something to change it. So uh, it was very important for me to be able to investigate an issue that's important to community members, right? And make sure that they have actual access to that information and that it's useful. In, in some way. So being able to publish it in Spanish with our very local outlet, Cicero Independiente, was a top priority for me and something that I mentioned in the beginning that we had to do to make sure that, you know, people who are predominantly Spanish speaking here in our suburb actually have access to it, are able to read it. We're also going to be publishing a print copy of this story next week that will be distributed. And as part of the story, we also worked with Injustice Watch to create a Know Your Right research our article specifically for young people who may be facing similar situations. So it was important to have this investigation, have a tool that's useful for people and make sure that the people who it's about actually have access to it. So that Know Your Rights piece too was also translated to Spanish and it was something that we printed out and distributed in town. So uh, yeah, all of those things are super important for me as a journalist and as a local journalist to make sure that we're top priority and not just afterthoughts. So you focused the article on like one former student, Roberto, 
how did you get in contact with him initially? And did you speak to other students who had signed gang contracts? I spoke to other students who have faced uh, disciplinary policies in the district, but with the intent of trying to find somebody who had signed the gang contract. But when I first started reporting on the stories, actually, when you know we went into lockdown and all of my plans for outreach uh, got thrown out the window, you know, I had planned to go to different physical locations around the area where I know young people hang out to talk to them about this and about to figure out what other issues, you know, are happening, what's at the top of their minds. But I wasn't able to do that. So uh, I didn't connect with Roberto until pretty later on in in the story when I had kind of given up hope that I'd be able to find uh, a student. But, you know, a lot of cold calling, a different organization, different gang intervention workers, different youth workers, and finally, uh, one of them was able to connect me to Roberto. So, yeah, I, I was very glad to be able to find him uh, and and to know that him and his family were very willing to talk about this issue and recognize the importance of being able to share their story um, and their solutions. Another part that was very important for me and that's included in this investigation in particular at the end are the solutions that are being proposed by people who live here and Roberto himself, right? He had a lot to say about how he has felt in school and the things that he felt were missing in school to support students like him. Because ultimately, I do believe that the people most affected by these problems are often the ones better equipped to propose solutions to address them. So that's why uh, it was very important for me to include that that part in the in the investigation that kind of gives hope, talks about what people are already doing, and talks about the solutions that they're proposing themselves. And it was, I mean, Roberto is such a beautiful person uh, and such a such a great uh, young person to speak with. I got to spend time with him, his family, his siblings. And it was great to get to know him and be able to include not just how it's affected him, but just his ideas for, for himself, his future, and yeah, what, what he'd like to see. You've kind of talked a bit about this, but what were some of the challenges you faced while reporting this story? Did you face pushback from school administrators once you actually got in contact with them? Yeah, so being in lockdown in the pandemic was definitely a challenge that I'm sure I'm not the only journalist who has faced. And especially, you know, we went into lockdown when I had started reporting on this uh, and it was it was tough to be able to find people to speak to, to do outreach with, uh, or to like places to outreach to. But so it took a lot of work, a lot of digging, uh, just cold calling, sending a bunch of emails, trying to find people to speak to. So it was definitely a challenge that I was able to deal with. It, it took a little longer than I expected, but you know, ultimately I was able to connect with people who had a lot to say. Talking to the school district was also very challenging. Uh, You know, I sent multiple requests for interviews to multiple people, you know, gave them calls, showed up to the uh, to the district office on, on various occasions and was not getting anything from them. And in the beginning, they were just requests for for information. Right. I, I did tell them, hey, I'm just starting to research this. I'd like to talk to you all about this, but didn't get any responses back. 
ultimately, you know, I did get some uh, emailed responses from both districts, the high school district and the elementary school district. But it's always tough, I think, to try to go back and forth in, in writing rather than just having a conversation. Um, so, you know, th- that was challenging. And this was also the first in-depth investigation that I worked on where I was relying on a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests. So it took, there were some that I submitted that I had to rewrite a few times because they came back with either no, no, no files found or, you know, they were too broad and were considered too burdensome. So I was kind of learning as I went as well, uh, you know, and had to, like I said, submit some FOIA requests multiple times until I was able to, to get what I was looking for, to get information that helped advance the investigation further. Ultimately, I would say the, the biggest challenge was just the, the pandemic, um, you know, trying to report on this issue as students are in remote learning, as people face a lot of risk when leaving their homes. So, yeah, that, that was that was tough. So the story was published back in May. Um, have school administrators made any changes since that publication? Yeah, so I actually, you know, have been attending the district board meetings since then as, as much as possible. And you know, I was very happy to hear uh, and meet some current high school students who, you know, found the, the story on social media and were inspired to actually go to the district board meeting to speak out against these gang contracts. Like that for me was like an, an unexpected, but super like it just made me feel so great to know that there's these young people, young high schoolers who are reading this stuff uh, that, you know, I'm working on and who took it upon themselves to like go to the board board meeting and speak out and to launch an email campaign. And at the meeting, there was actually a board member who, you know, also expressed that, you know, she's not on board with the game contracts. And uh, I've, I've followed up and there's been other people who have spoken up against the game contracts. And according to this board member, the the policy is currently under review by the superintendent and they will be addressing it uh, at a later board meeting. So the policy has not yet been removed, but it is under review. And the group that I mentioned, the education committee that, you know, was formerly known as Ixtel, it's, it, this is still an issue that they're working on. So they, they haven't abandoned it. And I, I think the story has helped to kind of reinvigorate their efforts. And, you know, something that's less um, quantifiable, perhaps, but that has been also very unexpected has just been the different uh, alumni and former students at the high school district who have reached out to me and told me that they experienced similar disciplinary measures or new friends who had to sign gang contracts. And just, um, you know, some of them have expressed just feeling as growing up and feeling a lot of shame at, you know, being considered a bad kid or feeling like they were bad people, bad kids that deserved this. And reading the story, as they said, like has really put into perspective how much of an institutional issue this is and not just reflective of their own uh, personal failings. So I think that's been very important too. And, and a big part of, I think, what investigations can do, right? Like shed light on on systemic problems and help people understand their own personal experiences as a part of a larger issue or a larger system that's not necessarily working. If you haven't already checked out Edenis Investigation, you can find it on the Type Investigations website, as well as Cicero Independiente and Injustice Watch. 
Thank you for listening.